The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, September 19th, 2022. So after winning two out of three in Detroit, it all comes down to this week for the White Sox with Cleveland arriving. After winning eight straight games against the Minnesota Twins, Minnesota finally beat Cleveland on Sunday afternoon. They have one more game remaining, which is going to be Monday afternoon, that will have White Sox fans checking scores on the MLB app. If Minnesota wins that game on Monday, the White Sox are three games back at Cleveland. If Cleveland wins, the White Sox will be four games back. With only three games left against Cleveland, all White Sox fans are left rooting for the Twins on Monday. That's how 2022 has been. As I've learned this season, it's really hard to ask for the White Sox to sweep an opponent, but they really need to sweep Cleveland this week. We are going to preview this crucial series in a moment, but there are some housekeeping news items that we have to touch on, starting with Michael Kopech going on the injured list with right shoulder inflammation. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. We knew asking Michael Kopech to handle a full season's load as a starting pitcher would suffer some bumps in the road, maybe an IL stint or two. Now we are seeing that he has right shoulder inflammation as Kopech missed his start against Detroit over the weekend. Do you think this signals the end of Michael Kopech's season? Seems like it, just because if you look at the odds, if you look at you know the likelihood of the White Sox having anything to play for by the time he's back, I would probably say that there's really not a point in rushing him back. You got starts for Davis Martin, you have starts for Vince Velasquez and Tanner Banks, and a lot of bullpen opportunities they can give guys. So if it's a case where it's shoulder inflammation, and shoulder inflammation is usually a pretty big deal, or or can signal a big deal uh, with uh, it's a body part that's tough to repair. So I don't think the White Sox would be cavalier in rushing him back if there was nothing to play for. So I'm thinking he's done, and it does. I was thinking about writing about this for 
Monday for Sox Machine, just trying to figure out like, was his season a success? You know, can you call it like a binary type thing, success or not a success? Is it somewhere in between? It's it's really tough just because he's been such a mystery for so long in terms of like, is he going to be able to start? Is he a reliever? Can he hold up? You know, when he opted out that added to the mystery, the Tommy John surgery also delayed his appearance. So it really did seem like it was all building up to this and it's all like, okay, it was... It was okay, but, you know, where do you go from here? I think is the big question if he doesn't come back. 25 starts for Michael Kovac in 2022. He's pitched a little more than 119 innings this season, 50 more innings than he did in 2021 during the regular season. His ERA plus was 112, so he was 12% better than league average. With a 3.54 ERA and his FIP was 4.49, which means that his war totals differ on baseball reference. It's a 2.1 war season on fan graphs. It's just one war. We'll have a full Kovac season review in our 2022 off season review podcast. Uh, but Jim, if Michael Kopech, let's be optimistic here. If Kopech feels he can give the White Sox 75 pitches and it's not that serious of inflammation, do you think the White Sox push Kopech in their run to the postseason? 75 pitches seems like they might use him. You know, that, that makes it a case where like, oh, maybe they can use him as an opener or something like that. Like maybe they can use him in the way they've used Reynaldo Lopez previously. Like give us the first two innings and then we'll take it from there and you can call it a day. We're not going to ask too much from you. We're not going to ask you to throw a ton of sliders. Just you know, hopefully your fastball life gets you through and we'll, we'll, we'll stop you before you're tired. I, I think would be the way they go about it just because by that point uh, when he comes back, I think it's going to be an all hands on deck situation to where you're going to have guys used in situations to where like one time through two times through um, guys warming up as soon as there's trouble I mean we've kind of seen it already with the you know Reynaldo Lopez being used in three consecutive games like Cairo will push people if he needs to but I think Kopech would allow him to have another arm he wouldn't he wouldn't push Kopech himself I don't think but having a guy like Kopech could take the weight off a guy like Reynaldo Lopez since they kind of cover the same thing in terms of fastball-oriented pitchers. My thinking was, if the White Sox make the postseason, that Kopech would be pitching out of the bullpen anyways. That your three-man rotation would be Dylan Cease, Lance Lynn, Johnny Cueto. Mm-hmm. And you're hoping that Kopech can, in a three-game series, Kopech can pitch in two of those games. And really help with the transition, right? Because that's the danger zone in the postseason games is when you go from starter to try to hand the ball off to your best relievers. There are an inning or two in every postseason game where things can get a little bit dicey coming out of the bullpen. And Kopech could, you know, he was used to that role. He pitched in that role last year. That was my thinking. So if he does come back, I wonder if it's going to be really strict limits as you mentioned, Jim, maybe two innings. Mm-hmm. And if that's all you can give, well, then I think it makes the most sense to put him into the bullpen. And I guess hoping that the dart, Davis Martin, continues to perform well. Uh, he did certainly over the weekend against Detroit in an admirable fashion, uh, thrust into a starting role on very late notice uh, as Johnny Cueto got sick as well. So the White Sox really had to shuffle up as far as the rotation over the weekend. And we'll talk about how that impacts the Cleveland series later in the show. But would the White Sox push him? That That is a question that 
I'm still having a difficult time answering just because with Rick Hahn, I, I don't feel like all the chips are in in 2022, Jim, that he may have an eye on 2023 and he may, may not want to jeopardize how 2023 goes. And with someone keeping an eye on 2023, I think that's where Michael Kopech could just be totally shut down for the rest of the season. And the White Sox thinking, hey, we like him as a starter. He showed flashes. Maybe he could take another big step forward in his development. That helps us more next year. And that's a bigger benefit than try to rush him this year when we are not exactly sure if we are going to make the postseason or it's not a certain thing like last year at this same stage of the regular season that it may be too risky to bring back Michael Kopech. Like that's what's going on in my head as far as the hypotheticals on which direction the White Sox can go with Kopech. I can see that a little bit. I think, you know, maybe they could just rationalize themselves into thinking like not so much that we're saving him for next year, more like if Kopech is 85%, if he's throwing like in the low 90s and the slider isn't, really a weapon and it hasn't been for long stretches of the year he's really gotten by on on fastball alone for a lot of the season I can see it being a case where like we have Lopez we have Jimmy Lambert who we like we have Davis Martin like this arsenal as it stands you know it's okay especially the fastball life like he hasn't really been punished the way other pitchers might be with like just when you look at the kind of uh, velocity he's getting and the inconsistent command and him being more control over command for you know, large chunks of starts. Like they could just see it being like not worth it based on who else we have. So it's, it's not so much like we think he's important. It's more a matter of like, it's not worth having a Kopecker throws 92. Like that, that's, that's the guy we're shutting down. We're not shutting down like a Kopecker who's throwing 95, 96 and, and giving us that, that, that juice out of the bullpen. Like this is a guy who might be the third best right-handed two-winning guy in our bullpen at this point, uh, if that's really how they see it. Well, we'll see what the White Sox do with Michael Kopech, but he is now on the injured list. I think the earliest that we could see him, if the White Sox do bring him back, is the final week of the regular season. Now, again, the White Sox won two out of three in Detroit over the weekend. Sunday's game was a big blowout, thanks to home runs from A.J. Pollock, Aloy Jimenez, which was absolutely demolished. And a big grand slam from Andrew Vaughn that blew the game wide open. But the first two games went into extra innings, which is stressful as a fan to watch. But for us at Sox Machine, it allows us to learn what kind of manager Miguel Cairo is because he's so new to this and we're so new to him calling the shots. And uh, we get to learn about his decision making. So, Jim, what did you learn about Cairo over the weekend? Well, when it comes to those late inning situations on the road, tie game, extra innings, mad friend, man, and all that, like he did manage it, I would say by the book or by the sabermetric analytical run expectancy book, uh, not you know, necessarily conventional wisdom. Like generally speaking, the rules of thumb when it comes to just, you know, breaking down the numbers and probabilities of the extra innings with the, uh, with the runner on second rule is that... In the ninth inning, if you have a guy you like nearly as much of your, as your closer, you're better off using that guy rather than your closer because the tenth inning is higher leverage with the runner already on second. And you know, especially like if it's a case where you know Liam Hendricks is operating with a tie game, like that is way tougher than ninth inning with the bases clear. So 
if you can, like if you're not like sending in an inferior reliever who might not even be able to get to the game to the 10th, uh, you want to save your closer for the 10th. And we saw that both times with Lopez pitching the 9th and Hendricks pitching the 10th. It worked out uh, one day and it not, did not work out the other. But, you know, it wasn't Lopez's fault. Lopez got the game to the 10th as planned. So uh, I think you'll continue to see that. The other thing is that on the road, played for two runs, or at least he didn't settle for one run. He didn't go for the sack bunt in either 10th inning. And you can even question, like, I don't think Andrews is going for the sack bunt necessarily. Like, he put down a good bunt that was even if Soto fielded it cleanly, you know, glove to hand, like Andrews might have beat it out or like it would have required a great throw from Soto off balance. So that wasn't like a bunt it right back to the pitcher, get the guy to third base, give yourself up, jog towards first base at 70%. Like this was a look like he was going for hits. And but either way, like let's say that he did bunt it back, like maybe that would have been a case where, you know, after failing to score, in both innings, you just want to put a run on the board and see if Detroit can do it. You know, Detroit can match you. So I, I can see it that way. But in the 10th, uh, he did play for two runs both times. Didn't work out, but that was the way he went about his business. Both times, Alex Ling shut the White Sox down. So um, some fans might be saying like, well, you know, just get a run. And uh, before this late flurry, the White Sox were among the worst teams in getting that run home from third with fewer than two outs. So bunting a runner to third doesn't necessarily guarantee success with this White Sox team. So he did play it by modern thinking in that like he tried to use all his bullets to get that run home and maybe more if uh, uh, somebody did connect with the hits or, you know, extra bases. So I think that's a given that we saw two days in a row uh, against the same team. I'm thinking he's pretty firmly committed to those two tenets. The things that I noticed, one over the series, he's giving more starts to Yasmani Grandal over Sebi Zavala when there's a right-handed starter on the mound. Not sure I like that. Not sure that I like that. Just because Grandal is having the worst season of his career. And Grandal, what happened to his defense, Jim? Like, it's it's really regressed. And... Or maybe it's just notice, more noticeable on how much Sebi Zavala has improved defensively. But I know we get this question asked a lot about playing time between Grandal and Zavala. And I feel like in this last stretch of the season, I probably go with Zavala over Grandal because Grandal is not really providing you anything offensively. Mm-hmm. And if I got to go with a better defensive catcher, that's Zavala, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, Zavala's you know, framing's fine. His uh, throwing's okay. Like he's not a strong defender, but he's also not a liability. Like I would call him average. I think when you round it all out, like he's he's an above average framer or I think slightly above average, probably slightly below average when it comes to blocking and throwing. But it now that he's hitting, you know, 270 something or 269 looks like um, power is kind of uh, dried up on him a little bit, but he's a catcher. So, I mean, like if he hits 270 and shows like some uh, modicum of extra base power, like he's fine. And especially with Grandal not pushing him like, yeah, go with, go with him. Like, I think we've seen, you know, other things with Cairo is that like, uh, you know, no longer is Grandal getting at bats just for the sake of getting at bats. Like he's there, either he's catching or it's a situation where like a walk will do. Or in the worst case, like it's a case where you need a homer and the guy at the plate is not going to give you the homer. And, you know, Grandal is just like slightly better, but it's worth pursuing those odds. Um, Other thing is we haven't seen Larry Garcia really at all, which is like um, refreshing. Like, you know, it's just (laughs) I'm guessing like even Garcia is a bit relieved. 
just to say like, okay, I'm here just now I'm, I'm pinch running. I'm playing, you know, in the late innings as a defensive replacement or as a, you know, defensive entry after pinch running, I no longer have to hit, uh, in, in situations where like the you know, entire lineup is not hitting and situations get to me. So yeah, I'm guessing like, you know, Garcia, given his quotes during the height of his struggles and LaRusse's insistence on playing him, that he, he might be refreshed by this. I, I mean, he's getting paid a lot to not do anything. Yeah. That's an off season thing that needs to be tackled and addressed by the White Sox, but <laughs> that's not a Miguel Cairo problem. That's not a Miguel Cairo problem. Absolutely. Uh, Cairo kept Lucas Giolito on a short leash mm-hmm. uh, with four two thirds innings pitched. He threw 96 pitches, but Giolito allowed a two out triple. I think Larusa would have kept Giolito in the game simply to ensure that Giolito qualified for the win. Cairo called for Jimmy Lambert, who got the out. Unfortunately, Lambert gave up a home run in the next inning. But that's something that I think there was a key difference on how Cairo handled that inning compared to LaRusso. Yeah, I can see that. Maybe not, though. You know, maybe the win. But even if it wasn't, I, I would hope, like in September, where your trailing teams are not pursuing individual wins for pitchers. I think it's just more of a matter of, like, this was his inning. Mm. Or he'd been pitching well, and he deserved the chance to overcome it out. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past him to, to try to, like, believe that starters need to go five innings. But, yeah, I, I do think... Given Giolito's reaction coming off the mound that, you know, maybe it's a case where he is used to getting that extra leeway that Cairo wasn't willing to indulge. And then he's trusting the veterans hitting. Uh, the note that I have here is that game two of the base is loaded. AJ Pollock is batting. The Tigers are going to a right-handed reliever. We know how poorly AJ Pollock's been hitting right-handed pitching this season. I thought it would make a lot of sense to go to Gavin Sheets in that situation to pitch it for Pollock. Cairo stuck with Pollock, and then Pollock delivered. He had a two-run single uh, to cash in as far as that decision. If it's someone else, if it's younger, like if it's like Romy Gonzalez in that situation, that's where I could see maybe double switches happen or Gavin Sheets hits for Romy Gonzalez uh, if it was a left-handed starter on the mound, uh, and then Sheets gets replaced by another defensive player uh, in that particular situation. But I see that Cairo is trusting the veterans in high leverage situations, especially when the White Sox are batting. I can see that. Uh, I wonder in that case, like I'm looking at that lineup right now with Roberts. Roberts started, and then you had Angle replacing Vaughn defensively. So maybe he just, you know, did not want to lose Pollock's bat with, you know, a couple innings of play when he knew like he might want to, yeah, you know, he didn't want to use angles bad at all. And maybe he'd, he thought like Sheets might be better off hitting for a Robert or Gonzalez if Robert's wrist, uh, you know, resurfaces as an issue or Gonzalez, you know, he's he's hit a rough patch. So maybe that's not a guy, um, you know, Kyra wants to see. And sure enough, Sheets entered as a Gonzalez replacement. So maybe he just looked at it and thought like, uh, you know, Pollock isn't that bad, like compared to how Gonzalez has looked and how like, you know, I definitely don't want a situation where angle has to come to the plate and hit for himself, even though he ended up doing so after uh, replacing uh, Vaughn. Um, yeah. That he might've jumped the gun a little bit there, but um, yeah, I, I think angle is more or less playing out the string in terms of just, you know, they're trying not to give him at bats, but also Robert, they're being really careful about, you know, monitoring the impact of the, 
baseball leaving his bat, the just the monitoring his wincing and and trying not to make him go four at bats where the last two are complete wastes because he just can't get the barrel through the zone. Those were the notes that I had over the weekend learning from Miguel Cairo. In game one, the White Sox losing, losing that game. We had the watch party. You called it out when we were doing the watch party. Liam Hendricks missed his spot in the, the game-winning sacrifice fly. He wanted to throw a high fastball. It was thigh high. He missed his spot. Hendricks also made a poor throw to first base. If he makes a good throw and gets that out at first base, that sack fly becomes the third out in the inning, and the game would have continued. So Liam Hendricks did not have a clean 10th inning. That's really on the players. The offense had a terrible time trying to generate any type of offense against Matt Manning. That is on the players. But again, this is a very small sample size. We have to look at it this lens. We get another opportunity with the Cleveland Guardians coming into town to gauge what kind of manager Miguel Cairo is because we don't know if Miguel Cairo is going to be the 2023 White Sox manager. He very well could be, not having any certainty with the Tony the Russa situation. But when you look at this lens, it's kind of fun learning about a manager that's got thrown into this position, Jim. Yeah, especially since, like, you know, should the White Sox fall short and we're wondering, like, what are the White Sox doing with LaRusso? When are they going to answer that question? When are, you know, if they have to go a different managerial route, who are they going to hire? Like, you know, another post we can write is like, what would have happened if the White Sox replaced uh, LaRusso sooner with Miguel Cairo? Like, what if they went that route sooner? Like, how would playing time have been distributed? How would, uh, you know, uh, certain reliever has been used. How would, you know, the, you know, second base and right field panned out. Like the more we see from him and these decisions that he has to make in high leverage and uh, whether it's, you know, pushing and pulling pitchers or uh, swapping out position players, defensive entries, uh, pinch hitting, et cetera. Like, you know, the, all of these high leverage games are giving us a little bit of a body of work to try to retrofit it to if the White Sox made this decision in July versus September. Well, Jim and I will take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming up next, we preview the biggest series of the season with the Cleveland Guardians visiting the South Side. This episode of the Sox Machine Podcast is presented by Trade Coffee. It's a coffee subscription service unlike anything you've tried before because they partner with top independent roasters to freshly roast and send the best coffees in the country direct to your home on your preferred schedule. Their team of experts do all the work taste testing hundreds of coffees from across the United States every month to curate over 450 exceptional coffees that make the cut. The coffee I get from Trade is so good. I can't believe how much I like what they picked out for me. And their team actually worked with me to create our own custom collection on Trade Coffee, which is great for me because I'm new to drinking coffee on the regular, and it's opened me up to different flavor profiles. You can check out our Socks Machine collection on Trade that includes a brew from Roaster Good Citizen, which they are based out of Nashville. Their sweet Augustine blend has a hint of sweetness that balances really well with the coffee bitterness. I have to be careful... I like it so much that I have to keep myself to just two cups of this blend before I'm way over caffeinated. And if what I got isn't up your alley, don't worry. Trade will have whatever it is you want. You can shop their most popular coffees by roast or flavor profile, or you can take their coffee quiz and get expertly matched with coffees you'll love. Trade is the easiest way to get your very best tasting coffee delivered fresh when you need it. You've got nothing to lose because Trade guarantees you will love your first bag. 
If not, they'll work with you to replace it for free. So if you want to help support small businesses and brew the best cup of coffee you've ever made at home, it's time to try Trade Coffee. Right now, Trade is offering our listeners a total of $30 off your first order plus shipping at drinktrade.com slash socksmachine. That's drinktrade.com slash socksmachine for $30 off your subscription to the best coffees in the country. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. It's hard to summarize the White Sox 2022 season in one word, but it's been a ride. A very bumpy ride, like driving down the Dan Ryan trying to dodge the potholes. But here they are with an opportunity to change their season's fate. Cleveland will either be 79-68 and 68 or 80-67, and 67, again, depending on what happens Monday afternoon against the Minnesota Twins. At this moment, the Guardians are on pace to win 88 games. Now, we thought for a while 86 wins would win the American League Central, but Cleveland getting hot has raised the bar currently in the American League Central. The season series, again, Cleveland is leading the season series. They are 9-7 and seven against the White Sox. And how that breaks down, they were 6-4 and four against the White Sox at home, but in Chicago, the teams have split the six games. They're both 3-3. Three and three. The pitching problems for this series, we do not have it for the White Sox. But for Cleveland, they're going to go with Aaron Savali, who against the White Sox this year has only pitched one inning because he left with an injury in that start. Wednesday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it's Tristan McKenzie. When Tristan McKenzie starts against the White Sox this season, Cleveland is 3-0. The last time McKenzie faced the White Sox, he struck out 14. And then Thursday night, it's Shane Bieber, in which Cleveland this season is 3-1 when Bieber starts against the Chicago White Sox. Johnny Cueto missed Sunday's start because of illness. The White Sox are hopeful he'll be available for the Cleveland series. If Cueto is available, Jim, how do you think Miguel Cairo will set up the rotation against Cleveland? Given that uh, Cueto's stuff had been a little bit short uh, the last couple times out, like the velocity not quite there, like kind of spending a lot of time around like 90-91 versus 92-94, to I don't mind seeing him get this little bit of extra rest. It was really cool that Davis Martin stepped up and basically delivered a Johnny Cueto start and Johnny Cueto spot. It was nice that the White Sox offense stepped up on Sunday to not require Vince Velasquez to pull a similar miracle. Like Vince Velasquez 
pitched a decent Vince Velasquez outing, four innings of two-run ball, and then he you know, turned it over to the bullpen. Andrew Vaughn Grand Slam gives him a cushion, so Jimmy Lambert can and, and, and Jose Ruiz can scuffle a little bit, and it's no big deal. So basically the last two games between uh, a great performance out of nowhere and a suitable performance masked by help elsewhere like they got through this mini crisis that popped up and so that's more or less cool and it gets them where they need to be without needing Cueto to like make up anything that he lost or or just like they don't need every single start from him the way they might have needed it if uh he missed one of these two outings and they felt his absence so right now like uh looking at it, it could be cease lynn yeah i would hope that they would start the first two games and then like maybe cueto for the third game and then basically it's almost like you have your you know not that they can think about a postseason rotation at this time but it would be lined up like that if they did make it to october with everybody intact my thinking was maybe have Cueto go Tuesday and then try to counter Tristan McKenzie and Shane Bieber with the two best performing starters that you have in Cease and Lynn. I can kind of see that, but, you know, I think it was AJ Pollock who said, like, you can't sweep them if you don't win the first game. Right. So, like, you can't think about sweeping. So I think you just have to try to nailed down those wins because as we saw with the uh you know cease against the rockies like it was supposed to be a walk and it wasn't like he had a labor so that's his fault necessarily or like that's a sign of him weakening like we saw jacob de grom lose the cubs we've seen some sizable uh upsets in the betting world recently with just you know these aces coming up short against uh teams that are not contending so i think for cease and lynn uh also keeping cease on tuesday keeps him in line to make the maximum amount of starts pitching the final game of the season if necessary so i don't think i monkey around with cease too much uh he's there lynn's there they're both lined up to get put the white Sox in the best position to get two wins in the two games and then you take your chances against beaver with whoever you have that that's kind of how i'd look at it i think if they have cueto go and he's not 100 percent uh, then they're just going to be either hoping for you know, Savali having the same issue or he's not 100% and it turns into kind of a bullpen slop fight. I'd rather see them try to maximize their chances of winning the first game and maybe put Cleveland on the ropes a little bit. Should be good crowds at home. Should be, you know, the, the White Sox have played Cleveland better recently. Uh, too bad the Twins can't say the same. So they shouldn't be... Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to go into the McKenzie or Beaver starts with like, oh, we're going to lose this one or it's going to take everything we got. I mean, it's going to take uh, a strong effort and certainly they know what each pitcher has done against them. But I think the first win is important and, and getting that first one does introduce the threat of a sweep and the Guardians losing a tiebreaker. I can remember this with the White Sox playing the Twins in 08 uh, and, and losing their place in the standings and losing a, a tie. There wasn't a tiebreaker at the time when it comes to the uh, you know home field advantage. If it were, uh, the uh, Twins would have hosted the White Sox in the Dome. Uh, but because of the coin flip situation, the White Sox end up hosting game 163, but just the, the Twins won and they won and they won and they won. And all of a sudden, the White Sox were having to scramble to get back into the uh, uh, driver's seat for the postseason and weren't there until the eighth inning in game 163. So that's how I look at it having watched the White Sox in the opposite position to just try to get the first win and try to make 
mistakes, both pitching and defense-wise for the Guardians, loom larger than they should over the next two games. And that's, you know, that's if Cease can even win game one, which, you know, as we saw with the Rockies, not a given. Cleveland could be gassed. They have played a lot of games in a row because they had so many postponements because of poor weather in Cleveland. And Saturday was a very long day for Cleveland and Minnesota, uh, especially the extra innings game that went to the 15th inning uh, as neither team was doing great uh, offensively in extra innings, but Cleveland was able to sweep that doubleheader. And that's kind of the amazing thing when looking at the Guardians and Twins series. And the Twins have a chance to win back-to-back games against the Guardians. That would definitely help the White Sox. But I was a bit surprised when I heard that the Guardians had won six in a row against the Twins. And then it became seven in a row. And then it was eight in a row. Like, the Twins were nine games above 500 at one point, Jim. They were dominating the American League Central in the first half of the season. And then all of a sudden, they could not beat Cleveland. And that's a big reason why they're mm-hmm. hovering around 500 right now uh, and in third place. That, that was something that really shocked me. But what I'm going to be paying attention to in Monday's game between the Guardians and Twins is will Emmanuel Classe be pitched? Because if he enters the game with the lead, it's been pretty much over for anyone that's facing Cleveland this year. But the rest of the Guardians' bullpen... That is a pretty taxed unit because they've been used a lot over the weekend against the Twins, Jim. Yeah, Karen Check looked, his stuff looked a little bit underwhelming. I think he was something like 95, 96. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and then uh, Nick Gordon homered off him. So, like, I was looking at his stuff and thinking, like, huh, he's usually like 97, 98. And, you know, he's been used a lot. If it's not Class A, it's Karen Check. You seldom see both of them out of the game at the same time. So, yeah, it just, and when that game went uh, 15 innings, at one point I was getting frustrated by, you know, the Twins' inability to put them away and, uh, you know, obviously rooting for the outcome. Like I was thinking, like, just this is, this is pathetic. And then I realized, like, this is great because they just had to keep throwing more and more innings. Like, if they're going to, at least they're losing the right way. If the Twins are going to lose, uh, just make it hurt. Make it hurt for everybody. That's yeah. really what you want to see. So, like, at some point, like, the their incompetence or just, like, the incompetence on both sides was like, yeah, fine. Like, you know, like you said, uh, they got another game on Monday. They don't have the off-day luxury that the White Sox have had the last two Mondays. So, if it is another high-leverage uh, nail-biter, like, great. Like, uh, you know, I wouldn't count on the Twins winning it. Like, my joke I've used in the, the, the past couple uh, Septembers where they've had huge games like you can tell it's a playoff atmosphere because the twins are losing like i love that joke and you know seeing them drop eight in a row to cleveland like yeah kind of it still works i i it's it's great so yeah now that uh you know they they won um i guess you can say like well they are out of it i guess that they they have the ability to win their six games back of Cleveland. So, I mean, imagine what the White Sox have and needing the White Sox to lose like every head-to-head to match up against Cleveland. Plus, needing a big losing streak from Cleveland itself is just, that's a lot. So, yeah, perhaps they are done, and that was their way of acknowledging it by actually seeing a victory through all the way in nine innings in a fairly straightforward fashion. There are some, though, that I'm not going to say accuse Terry Francona, but believe that Terry Francona may have punted 
purposely the game against the White Sox, the last game in Cleveland that past Thursday where the White Sox hit five home runs off of a pitcher who is probably more suited to pitch in AAA than in the major leagues because Francona knew that he had five games in four days against the Twins. He did not want to overtax his pitching staff that he wanted to save the arms. And, of course, he still has a lineup to have both McKenzie and Bieber against the White Sox in Chicago. And if the Guardians do their job, they're still going to have a three or four game lead over the White Sox. So they're going to be in pretty good position. I mention this because, and maybe this will be a cold take, depending on when you listen to this podcast episode. I wonder if Francona will punt Monday, in which the Guardians are going to give it 75%. And if they win going 75%, fantastic. But I don't think he is going to rush out if the game is tied in the ninth inning and send out Emmanuel Class A to make sure it gets into the 10th inning. Hmm. I don't see Francona making those moves because he has the benefit of having this cushion in the division. He's been down this road before. That's where I'm really paying attention to is the bullpen usage right now for Cleveland and just how gassed it could be. I think everyone else has been used a lot over the weekend, except for Emmanuel Class A, and he's the most important reliever they have. Yeah, I would say maybe not 75%. I would say it's probably like 85 to 90. I can't see them like bypassing the opportunity to be four up on the White Sox with a three-game series. Like, no matter what happens, they're still in the driver's seat uh, the rest of the way. Like, I think they'd really like to, you know, kind of like the idea of, like, having a, a five-run lead, just, you know, Grand Slam can't can't tie it. I think that's the way they're kind of looking at it. So I can see a situation, like, if they're down one in the eighth or ninth innings, they're not going to try to chase that win, you know, throwing good relievers in a situation where like they still need the bottom of their lineup to come through in the ninth inning. And that's probably not going to happen. So I, 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 I'm more inclined to say like, they're not going to try to create a win out of whole cloth if the eighth and ninth innings aren't lined up for it. But if it's tied and you're counting on, or like you're counting on the twins doing you the favor of deciding the game for you, like I imagine it's going to be the case where nah, try to get the win yourself. And as we've seen with the, you know, the doubleheader, just like the twins can shoot themselves in the foot in a whole lot of different and, and creative ways. Like uh, reading Dan Hayes's coverage, uh, reading uh, just the uh, twins bloggers I follow on Twitter, just as painful as this White Sox season has been. Um, it's a different order just because the White Sox bullpen is fine. Like the White Sox bullpen has had mistakes. They've had, you know, some bad Hendricks outings. They've had Joe Kelly, but there are general bastions of stability, multiple ones with like Hendricks and Lopez and Graveman. Like they're all having fine to good years. And basically Duran is the only twins reliever who has provided any kind of oasis of high leverage competence everybody else is dropping the ball or, or you know you can't feel good about their chances of holding like a one-run lead in the late inning so i think you know white Sox fans can't consider them lucky necessarily because you know we've watched a whole lot of you know it should have been easier for the white Sox. should have been maybe easy for the white Sox because the guardians are leading without trying over the winter but when you see what the twins have done like the false hope like the white Sox. Yeah, after April, never really provided the false hope that the Twins, I think, offered their fan base. And with the deadline they had of adding Maley and Lopez, like uh, Fulmer, like they, they also had that boost the deadline that the White Sox did not have with like the Jake Diekman only deadline. Uh, 
After April, yeah, nobody has really done anything on the White Sox to get fans' hopes up. And I don't think you can say the same thing for Minnesota. So at least we have that. At least we have our nihilism <laughs> protecting us from, uh, from, from bigger heartbreak. Good point, Jim. <laughs> I say it a question. Eat man. Arby's. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's take a look at who will be the key hitters for the White Sox in this series. Again, as I mentioned before, the White Sox have not been Tristan McKenzie this year. They're 0-3 in those games. They are 3-1 against Bieber. The one time they beat Bieber, though, was in Chicago back in July 24th when they had eight hits and six earned runs against Shane Bieber over six innings as they hit three homers on their way to win 6-3 to against Shane Bieber. So it is possible for the White Sox to get to Bieber. We haven't seen a lot of success against McKenzie. And going down the list as far as the key hitters that I point out for the Chicago White Sox that really need to come through with a big series, it starts with Jose Abreu. Now, we don't know what Abreu's future is with the Chicago White Sox. It, you're, we're already seeing preparations for the upcoming offseason. Here are the top free agents. And when people write about Jose Abreu, they say there's a slight chance that Abreu becomes a free agent and he leaves Chicago. It's a slight chance, but it is a chance. And for Jose Abreu, I don't know if these are the last set of home games for Jose Abreu. The White Sox only have nine more home games for the rest of the 2022 season. Three against Cleveland, three against Detroit, and at the end of the season, three against the Minnesota Twins. So I don't know if we should be taking advantage of these opportunities as White Sox fans getting to root for Abreu extra hard, knowing not knowing if he's coming back or not. And he's had one heck of a White Sox career. But against Bieber, he's done very well. He's hitting 286 with a 548 slugging percentage against Bieber. He's hit three homers. Against McKenzie, he's four for 11 with four walks and four strikeouts. He's one of the few White Sox hitters that has done well against Tristan McKenzie. So I feel like this is a series in which for Jose Abreu, we know the power has been down, Jim. Shockingly, he's in the this race to win the American League batting title, though. Uh, with the batting average being as high as it is for Abreu, and he continues to find a way to get on base. But if there's runners in scoring position with two outs that Abreu's at the plate, White Sox fans really need Abreu to come through one more time for them to drive in those runs. Yeah, it is a little weird when you put it that way. Like, we know that he's been a free agent after the year, that he's... Yeah, a lot more, or I should say non-committal to where he's going to be playing next year, where he wants to be playing, as opposed to the last time he was in a contract year and said he would re-sign himself to the White Sox. So it is, you know, we've known it's going to happen, but when you mentioned like last nine home games and, you know, with October, you can't count on postseason baseball this year. Like, yeah, it is, it is weird, isn't it? Like just to be talking about it in that way. So, uh, yeah, it's... I think it's him and it's Aloy Jimenez. Like basically when you see Jimenez providing protection and you know, I know that, you know, if, if you've done any reading on the topic, like the idea of projection, uh, protection can be overblown, but when you see like a pitch round of a Brayu to put him on first with, you know, uh, the first base open setting up a double play and Jimenez comes through, like, I don't think you can discount uh, protection entirely just because it's so satisfying when you see a pitch around, blow up. So I think it's, yeah, I kind of look at them almost as a package unit to where like if a Brave is not going to be the home run threat, 
that he was. And he has, I think, one homer in his last 40 games. So, like, if he's not going to be the guy, if you're looking at, like, Andrew Vaughn as the home run leader for this team, then Jimenez, he has to provide, like, that kind of muscle. So if Abreu is going to be more of a table setter or, like, a knock him in type, um, yeah, I think you have to look at Jimenez doing the finishing move. That's kind of how I look at it. Jimenez is 5 for 15 in his career against Bieber with a home run and two doubles. He's two for six against Tristan McKenzie because Jimenez has been hurt in some of the starts by McKenzie, and the two haven't crossed paths quite a bit. Another key hitter I'm pointing out in this series is Yohan Makata. Now, against Bieber, Makata's nine for 39, not great, but he does have two home runs against Bieber. Against McKenzie, he's four for 16. And the reason I bring up Makata is that he's kind of hero or zero, Jim. He's either going like 0 for 4 and he's not providing any offensive output output, or he's the hero. He's coming up with the game winning hit. He's got a four hit game or a five hit game for the White Sox. Like there's no in between. Like Makata's not going 1 for 4 like every single day and he's got like a 10 game hitting streak. He's going 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and the next day he's going 4 for 5 and we don't know how we should take your Makata at this stage. But we saw him come up big against the Houston Astros at home in that four-game series, coming up with big clutch hits for the White Sox with the go-ahead hits. And I've got a feeling because they're going to be facing three right-handed pitchers uh, from the Guardians, and it's a lot of righties coming out of the bullpen. The White Sox need one of these left-handed bats to come through, and I'm thinking if he could do it one more time, Yohan Makata might be the one most likely to come up with a big hit out of the White Sox lefties. I was looking at Gavin Sheets, who is kind of fitting the same description right now in that like he's looking at September stats, batting 140, 224 OBP, 233 slugging, one double, one homer, and 43 plate appearances, five walks, 10 strikeouts. Like strikeout rate's fine, walk rate's fine. Uh, everything else is kind of a mess, and he gets in these funks to where he doesn't really make authoritative contact. It's just all soft outs if you watch him for an bad at a time like oh there's a fly out to left oh there's a ability to uh, or, or an attempt to beat the shift on the left side didn't work out oh there's a uh, a pop-up on the right side like timing just looks off he'll uh, he'll get back on track soon enough but then he has these you know just stretches where he goes 15 games and just the contact is all soft and when you you mentioned the barrage of right-handed pitchers both starting in bullpen because the uh, Cleveland really doesn't use left-handed relievers like all their strong high leverage guys are on the right side basically that uh, it is going to be a lot of sheets as well as Moncada so you look at Moncada I look at sheets well well I guess uh uh, we'll pick one of each and uh, really focus on what they're doing or not doing in this game. But yeah, these left-handed bats, like especially if you don't count on Grandal doing much of anything and you think Zavala is going to be getting some starts and uh, you know, you're not going to see Grandal come up in any situations where like DH or key pinch hitting situations, like it is going to be those two left-handed bats. And uh, it sure would be nice to see Sheets get some of that timing back to where he's, you know, driving the ball to the gap, driving, uh, you know, having one of those, uh, pretty, uh, backspin laden drives. It just floats out three rows deep in the right field. Like that's really what the White Sox could use at this point. Cause when you look at his numbers against, uh, you know, Bieber and McKenzie, like they're fine. Three for 12, uh, three for 10. Like they, you know, he hangs in there well enough. It's just more of a matter of, can he get the barrel where it needs to be at any point, uh, this week, because it's been a rough two weeks before this. 
We know how much Sheets loves hitting at home. So hopefully he has another big series at home as well. The last hitting matchup that I'm curious to see if we're going to see on Wednesday is Andrew Vaughn against Tristan McKenzie. Andrew Vaughn's 0 for 10 against Tristan McKenzie. So can Andrew Vaughn get a hit against Tristan McKenzie is what I'm wondering if we get to see that matchup on Wednesday or if uh, Miguel Cairo decides to sit Andrew Vaughn just because of the poor performance that he has against Tristan McKenzie so far in his young career. So that's on the offensive side for the Chicago White Sox. We identified players that we think, especially the hitters, that need to have a big series. Let's look at the pitching. For the White Sox, Dylan Cease is 2-1 against the Guardians this season. The one loss was back in April 21st. His last two starts against the Guardians, he has not allowed an earned run. And the White Sox won 7-0 on July 12th, and they won 6-3 on July 24th. Lance Lynn, we know how big of a start he had against the Guardians this past Thursday as he went six and a third innings. He did allow two earned runs because Aaron Bummer gave up that inherited run, Jim. Not that I'm sour about it. Uh, he's got, he allowed six hits and he struck out six. As a matter of fact, Lance Lynn has struck out at least six batters when facing the Guardians in his last three starts. The White Sox are two and two against Cleveland when Lance Lynn starts winning back on July 23rd. That game was in Chicago, and Lynn pitched six scoreless innings against the Guardians, giving up just three hits, walking one, and struck out six. The White Sox had to hold on for that one. They won 5-4 to four back in July 23rd. And Johnny Cueto against Cleveland, really weird. 15 to two-thirds innings and two starts, two strikeouts. Two strikeouts and 15 and two-thirds innings. There's old school, and there's really, really, really <laughs> old school. And that is really, really old school, not piling up. And a lot of strikeouts from Johnny Cueto. So those are the three starting pitchers that we think are going to be making starts against the Guardians. Which one of these three are you most confident in, Jim? Which one of these three are you least confident against the Guardians? I'm probably most confident in Lance Lynn just because I think of the... The freshness angle, like I could see, you know, Cease kind of wearing down or not being like his most dominant self because it's new. Like this, this strain is new on him. Like he's been able to, uh, last year he did make 32 starts. So like he led the league in starts, but he was able to, you know, throw five to six innings at a time and, you know, kind of hide behind, you know, not hide necessarily, but you know, Lucas Gilito and Lance Lynn, they were the Cy Young finalists. Cease could, uh, do well enough himself and have his own breakout season, but it was not, you know, their plans weren't contingent on him doing so. So he was able to uh, avoid, I guess, these situations where like, oh, it's a must win game for Dylan Cease at the end of a long season to where he's been the guy because Lynn's been unavailable and Giolito hasn't been himself and Johnny Cueto's a miracle worker, but uh, that could fall through at any time. So I'm, I'm a little bit wary of you know just putting too many eggs in the cease basket given everything he's delivered so far and just thinking like you know it's another contact laden team so the strikeouts aren't going to be there naturally will he be able to work around that so i think you know when you look at uh, the way lynn is thrown and have you seen his walk to uh, strikeout to walk ratio yeah it's crazy it's very one-sided in a good way yeah, 113 strikeouts, 16 walks, 103 innings. And he hasn't issued multiple walks in outings since July 11th. 
Uh, I'm looking to see like, okay, he's got, uh, if you count hit by pitches, he's got a couple where like, you know, he might've gotten by uh, plunking somebody, but basically he's, he's only had one game and that was his start against Oakland where he allowed three free bases, either walks or hit by pitches. So he's not getting himself in trouble, uh, against you know, a team that'll put the ball in play and might make innings, uh, get over quick if the White Sox uh, defense are positioned like the way you want to see them positioned. So I think I have the most faith in Lynn. I think many, I mean, you know, maybe any apprehension is that they just saw him uh, a week ago. And so, you know, if you think that uh, they have a recent book on him, what he looks like now, that might be the one thing that maybe is a disadvantage, but based on the way he's throwing, given that he's only, you know, crossed a hundred innings and really he's only been, his true self for about two months now. Uh, he should have more in the tank compared to like Cease, who's at the end of a a year he's never had, and Cueto, who's been a, you know a, a godsend, but also shouldn't have been counted upon to do this much in the first place. Looking at key pitchers and looking outside of these three starters, I'm curious on how Liam Hendricks is going to hold up against the Guardians, Jim, because it's not been a good season for Hendricks against Cleveland. He's made five appearances. He's pitched three and two-thirds innings. He's got two saves, but he's allowed six earned runs. The Guardians are hitting eight for 19, and they have hit two home runs against Liam Hendricks. I am expecting that Liam Hendricks is going to be needed in every game in this series. Uh, With it being close games, at least that's my expectation, that these games are going to be close. The White Sox are sweeping the Guardians. It's It's Liam Hendricks on the mound to close out these games. And I'm wondering with just already so much exposure of Hendricks to the Guardians, the Guardians having this level of success against Liam Hendricks, this is where all of a sudden I'm a little bit uneasy when Hendricks is entering the game just because I don't know what to expect. Usually when I see him enter the game, I'm expecting great things. I'm expecting hitters to really struggle in trying to decide if I'm going to be attacking the fastball or if I'm going to try to find a hanging slider to bash against Liam Hendricks and looking foolish in either case. But that really hasn't been the instance against Cleveland, and it seems that the Guardians hitters are very confident in facing Liam Hendricks. But I don't see the White Sox having any other option in closing out games when it's a save opportunity. So I think that's going to be a pretty crucial pitching matchup is how does Hendricks hold up against a team that sees him and hits him very well. One guy I'm wondering about is Joe Kelly. Uh, He's on family medical leave uh, list right now. And when I look at the performances against the Guardians this year, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Hendricks has been rough. Graveman's been hit a little bit. Uh, Lopez has been hit a little bit. Like Lopez hasn't walked anybody, but five runs over six and two thirds innings, uh, seven hits allowed. So they've gotten him to like all the strikeout numbers uh, are down, whether it's Graveman striking guys out, but you know, Hendricks, you know, he's gotten six strikeouts over three and two thirds innings the hard way. It's like, he's not able to get anybody out if he's not striking them out. So that's kind of how that works. So uh, when you look at Kelly, uh, five games, five scoreless innings, four hits, no walks, eight strikeouts. Like he's been uh, the guy Cleveland hasn't wanted to see. So like, not that, yeah, I think Cairo has 
firmly put Kelly in his losing bullpen. Uh, that that's one of the decisions I think we've also seen. Like it's it's Graveman and Lopez and Hendricks and maybe Lambert in games he wants to win and in games he thinks like it's gonna be hard pressed to come back. It's Diekman and it's uh, Kelly and you know Bummer's kind of. Uh, been in both groups because he's been you know using some high leverage or low leverage opportunities to get work in but he's also like when he lefty he's gone to bummer over Deekman. so kelly had been in that losing bullpen and we saw him pull that uh that double play out of his butt with the uh strikeout one two uh so yeah he's been a mixed bag but yeah i'm curious if he's gonna be back if he's gonna be a factor at all in this bullpen because if it does get into uh, close and late situations, especially like, you know, game two or something like that, when they've already seen Graveman and Hendricks, like, could Kelly be a factor? Uh, would Cairo want him to be in that kind of situation that Larusa seemed to trust him for? So that's a, uh, you know, maybe Kelly doesn't come back. You know, if he's on uh, uh, FMLA, and so he just uh, doesn't factor in whatsoever. There isn't a decision to be made. But if there is a decision to be made, what's Cairo going to do? That's a good point. I did not know that Joe Kelly had been that successful. So what you're saying is, if Joe Kelly comes back, and he's available for the White Sox, and he does come out in the eighth inning of games, that instead of being my typical self of, oh my gosh, how is Joe Kelly going to blow this, I should feel confident as a White Sox fan that, Joe Kelly's going to have a clean inning here. Maybe not confident, but maybe just at least uh, <laughs> the way I look at it is like, there's a reason for this. Like that, that's kind of how I look at it. Like there's a, there's a thought and I know it's five games and people look at the rest of what Kelly's done in the 6.42 ERA and say like, that's regression is coming for him. And this could be just as messy as so many other outings this year, but Given you know the 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 fastball problems that uh, Hendricks has had getting by guys, you know uh, Graven also has a very straightforward approach with his fastball first. Lopez's fastball first. Like if you need a guy who throws uh, something else besides a fastball first, like Kelly would fit that bill. And maybe like because he throws more breaking balls in fastball situations, like a, a contact oriented team like the Guardians, they maybe don't know how to punish that so easily. So to wrap this up with our series preview, again, the biggest series of the season for the Chicago White Sox. So much is riding on this series, Jim. What do you think is going to be like the biggest factor in how well the White Sox or how poorly they do against the Guardians this week? Probably, I would say, extra outs. Defense. Defense or pitching, just, you know, losing batters, like just, you know, going from 0-2 to 3-2 or walking guys, like just extra batters, extra outs, uh, uh, not finding the shortest possible distance between the, the first out and third out, I think is... Uh, the the margins for error are so slim. We saw the, you know, Andrews, you know, he had a couple of weird uh, um, moments in the field with the cutoff, not being cut off and going all the way through in the bias triple and then his brain locking up on Akil Badu's uh, blown stop sign and just, you know, him not making that decision. So we've seen him succumb to White Sox brain a little bit. So I think, you know, it's a case where, uh, it's going to be tense. And, you know, I think game one, you know, it's the, you know, it's a must win series. And, and some will say it's a must sweep series. 
And I think, you know, for most intents and purposes, it is a must sweep series just because that tiebreaker is so huge. And, you know, adding a, a game lead to, um, the standings is something that we're not accustomed to seeing, like in factoring into our math in September. And if they lose game one, like, you know, just, you could see just the, the life go out of them. But I do think, you know, given that the central has been weird and it's kind of a confederacy of dunces and we've seen the, uh, the guardians fall flat and, and get swept and, and be, you know, their, their offense held in check. Like, it is a must win. They need to win two out of three. If they lose the first game and they do lose the tiebreaker, like they still need to try to pull out all the stops to win the final two. Like they have to make the Guardians win the division. And so, like, as much as it is a must sweep, pretty much, like they can't treat it as must sweep just because even if they lose game one or they lose game two, they have to try to win. Like it's a must win two out of three. Uh just in order to make the rest of the schedule matter. I think for me, it's very simple home runs. It's really tough to string three, four hits in a row in an inning against the guardians. But as we saw last Thursday, you could hit home runs against this, against this team. And they hit five last time they faced the guardians. If they could put the ball in the seats and generate that instant offense to help support the pitching staff, especially early and they could avoid any type of situation where they are going to see Emmanuel Class A, then I think the White Sox will be in a terrific position to win this series. And fingers crossed, they find a way to string three wins in a row against the Guardians so they could have the tiebreaker and make this a very tight race to the American League Central with just a couple of weeks remaining in the regular season. Jim and I, of course, will be recapping this series. There will be the articles at SoxMachine.com. There will be the White Sox wake-up calls. It's going to be a very late podcast recording because, again, Thursday night, the game is going to be at 7, 10 p.m. Central Time. I will be at that game, so Jim and I will be recording very late on Thursday night, but we will try to get you an episode ready to go for that Friday morning as we recap. Hopefully, a very successful series against the Cleveland Guardians and I can't believe I'm saying this, Jim. Let's go Minnesota on Monday. <laughs> that, would, Minnesota. that would go a long way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you know, when it comes to the uh, the Sox Machine Live, that people uh, won't want to be falling asleep for a good reason. True. Very true. But I appreciate everyone taking the time listening to this episode as that will conclude this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you could, you could subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Apple and Spotify Music. And if you enjoy your work and you want more from us, you can sign up to become a Patreon at patreon.com slash machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content like the P.O. Sox mailbags. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they're the first ones to get it. Yes, and the P.O. Sox mailbag was overflowing, so look for probably a two-part mailbag exclusive to Sox Machine supporters uh, Monday and Tuesday on SoxMachine.com. And you could sign up with monthly plans starting at $2, or you could save with an annual subscription. Again, the URL is patreon.com slash SoxMachine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your own for all things Chicago White Sox baseball, and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. 
Thanks for listening.